What was the argument to give Myriad a patent for this technology? Because obviously it's life-saving, but as you mentioned earlier, Neil, if they had a patent, they could continue charging $3,000 for the test, where it really, I, I guess it went down to about $100. Hi, I'm Neil Katyal, and welcome to Courtside, a podcast about the Supreme Court and what it means to you. I've argued 50 cases at the United States Supreme Court, and I've served as the federal government's top lawyer, but I want the court to come alive for you. Each week, I'm going to discuss a single Supreme Court case with one guest, someone who's not a lawyer and who can translate the case into plain English. So instead of talking about the law with some fusty lawyer named something like Oliver Wendell Holmes, we're going to do it with people like John Mulaney and John Legend. The Supreme Court is increasingly intruding into every aspect of our lives, and the goal here is to unpack a bit of that this summer. And we're going to run through the summer, because in September, the court comes back into session, and I've got to go back to my day job. But if this podcast works out, we'll do it again next summer. By the way, all of our episodes are posted over at neilkatyal.substack.com. That's N-E-A-L dot k-a-t-y-a-l dot substack dot com along with a bunch of bonus stuff including written pieces and discussion threads you can support the show there or sign up for free so each episode of courtside would land right in your email that's neilkatyal.substack.com each week you'll get access as a subscriber to all sorts of information about the case i've summarized the case in a three-page document and a bridged 20-pager of the decision along with the actual full text of the decision so you can read it for yourselves. All of that is available to you as a subscriber. In legal news over the last week, the big item was the Supreme Court. This week, I want to talk about two decisions that the court just recently handed down, one on voting and one on affirmative action. The first one is Moore versus Harper, a case that legendary retired conservative Court of Appeals judge Michael Ludig declared to be the most important win in the nearly 250 years of protecting our democracy. I have, just full disclosure, a big interest in this case. I spent a year on nothing but it, basically, and had the privilege of arguing it in the United States Supreme Court for common cause. The case begins when you think about, for example, the Trump theory in 2020 and the Republican Party's theory more generally which is that state legislatures can do whatever they want when it comes to federal elections. That means no state constitutions can have anything to say about them. State courts can have nothing to say about them. It's just raw political power of the state legislatures. This reached its apogee with John Eastman's theory, which later became Donald Trump's theory, that the state legislatures could even throw out the popular vote in places like Arizona and send their own set of fake electors. All of this comes from a misreading of the Constitution, in my judgment. It's true that the Constitution's text says that state legislatures shall set the times, places, and manners of regulating federal elections. What Donald Trump and the Republican Party have read that to mean is that only state legislatures can set the rules for federal elections. No one else, not courts, not state constitutions. And so in this case from North Carolina, even though North Carolina is a politically pretty even state and has 14 congressional districts, the state legislature drew it so that the Republicans would control approximately 10 of those districts, 10 of those 14. 
And the case here about the meaning of this provision applies not just to gerrymandered maps, but to anything involving voting, from polling places to polling hours to absentee ballots to all of those 60 or so different cases that you might remember that Donald Trump brought in the 2020 election. He lost them all, and he lost them predominantly in state courts. And that's why the Republican Party has come up with this new theory that state legislatures are independent and can do whatever they want when it comes to federal elections. Now, I thought that was wrong, and I've lived for this case. I've taught constitutional law for two decades at Georgetown and have a historical focus to my scholarship. And I really thought this case was ahistorical because the founders believed in one thing above all, which is checks and balances. They didn't believe in raw political power. And indeed, during the Articles of Confederation, state constitutions played a critical role in governing federal elections, even though the Articles of Confederation had the exact same textual provision about state legislatures in it. So I believed this history so much that I ran a set play. You might remember that Justice Thomas is the what he calls an originalist justice. He's someone who believes that the original understanding and practice of the Constitution is what governs. That allowed me to run this set play, because ever since COVID, the court has moved to an oral argument questioning protocol where Justice Thomas asks the first question. It didn't used to be that way. Anyone would ask the first question to be totally random. But afterwards, due to COVID, that's how it fell. And I've been thinking for the last few years about how to take advantage of that change in protocol. Moore versus Harper gave me my chance. Justice Thomas asked the first question. I answered it. And then I said, words to this effect. Justice Thomas, for over two decades, I've been waiting for this case because it speaks to your method of constitutional interpretation history. And here, the history is overwhelming on the side against the independent state legislature theory. And I gave him four different examples, powerful examples of why. And that history is what tipped the balance. The Supreme Court, in a six to three opinion, written by Chief Justice Roberts and joined by Trump appointees Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett, said that the state legislature doctrine, independent state legislature doctrine, does not exist. That ordinary checks and balances control the day. Now, to be sure, there was a dissent written by none other than Justice Thomas, who said, well, the history is not clear enough for me, so instead I'm going to focus only on the text, a switch in method, and it did get him to a different result than the majority. But the decision is a complete repudiation of the independent state legislature theory and a powerful reaffirmation that state legislatures must comply with their founding charters including the limits placed on state legislatures by the people. There's also another interesting aspect to the case, which is that people, including all of the co-parties on our side, actually didn't believe we could win and wanted to get rid of the case. They told the Supreme Court after the oral argument to try and dismiss the case from their docket. Those arguments were wrong, they were misguided, and they stand as a powerful lesson that if one studies carefully United States Supreme Court decisions, litigants can win cases that stand up for our democracy. And I do think Moore versus Harper is, is important for one final reason. It's a signal to me that this Supreme Court, with a solid six justices behind it, 
will resist attempts by state legislatures to mess with the integrity of the 2024 election. I've had the privilege of arguing and winning many cases at the United States Supreme Court, including striking down the military tribunals at Guantanamo, which was my very first case, and upholding the constitutionality of the Voting Rights Act. But this win, quite honestly, feels like the biggest and most important. I care so deeply for this democracy. It's what brought my parents here from India, and to have contributed to it in any way, there's nothing quite like it. The timing is also so poignant, because I had just recorded the episode with Katie Couric that you're about to hear, and I said to her that the Miria Genetics case was my most important victory ever. You'll hear why in a moment, but I think more will, in many ways, be even more important than Myriad. But that's not to take anything away from Myriad, as you will soon learn. The second decision I want to talk about before getting into Myriad is affirmative action. That involved two cases, one coming from Harvard, the other coming from the University of North Carolina. Now, I have a lot of involvement in these issues, so please note that I'm speaking here personally to all of you. Since 1978, the Supreme Court has upheld affirmative action programs. In the Bakke case, Justice Powell wrote the controlling opinion, which said that affirmative action plans are okay so long as a quota is not being used and it was a soft plus, one given to folks because they bring diversity to a campus and benefit all students. A university that does so, Justice Powell said, has to truly believe in diversity, not just along race, but along geography, athletics, musical ability, and other such things. The Supreme Court again upheld affirmative action in 2003 in the University of Michigan cases, and then again in 2015 in the University of Texas cases, with Republican-appointed justices leading the way. One of those justices was Justice O'Connor, who in the 2003 University of Michigan case said that she expected affirmative action to last for 25 years and no longer. Now we're in 2023, 20 years after that University of Michigan decision, and the Supreme Court strikes down affirmative action. The court reads those earlier decisions to impose three limits on the uses of race in admissions. First, university programs have to comply with a very tough standard, what the law calls strict scrutiny, in order for any affirmative action. Two, they can never use race as a stereotype or negative. And three, at some point, these affirmative action programs must end. That led the court to strike down both of the affirmative action plans before them in a 6-3 to three decision. The decision is disappointing, no doubt, but in some ways it was narrower than many expected. In particular, the last two paragraphs of Chief Justice Roberts' opinion for the court leave the door open to some affirmative action, essays, for example, that focus on what an individual applicant may bring to the school and their experiences with race are okay. Proxies, such as using socioeconomic disadvantage, may also be okay. I don't mean to minimize the decision jurisprudentially or in any other way. After all, the Supreme Court here did really break away from decades upon decades of precedent. But nonetheless, the court has left the door somewhat open. And I think that's a good thing. As a law professor for more than two decades, I've seen just how much diversity contributes to the classroom. 
I encourage all of you to read these decisions. They are remarkable in their vigor and the way in which they disagree, the dissenting opinions disagree with the majority. We'll hear argument first this morning in case 12-398, Association for Molecular Pathology versus Myriad Genetics. This week, we're going to discuss Association for Molecular Pathology versus Myriad Genetics. Now, a lot of people, when they think about the Supreme Court, think about big constitutional issues, abortion, gay marriage, death penalty, guns. And all of that is, of course, super important, but the court has an outsized influence on many other aspects of our lives. This Myriad case is a perfect example. The case might actually influence your life more than just about any other. It concerns whether the human genome can be patentable. That is, can a company assert ownership over a gene sequence that exists in your body, and the stakes are huge? The Myriad case's facts concern two genes, BRCA1 and BRCA2, which are two genes that if you have the mutated sequence in your body, means you'll have a very high risk of getting an aggressive form of breast cancer. But this case is not just about those two patents, not at all. It's about all gene patents, the roughly 20,000 different patents that have been issued since the Reagan administration until the United States Supreme Court got involved. And just like early testing over BRCA1 and 2 genes can save your life, that's true for thousands of other diseases too. I am so pleased we have the phenomenal Katie Couric to talk about all of this with you. Katie is one of the most prominent people in media today. Her interviews are the stuff of legend, and she's intensely curious and brilliant, and at the same time, relatable and truly a deep human being. She also has a lot of personal connection to this material, and we'll learn about that as well. I am so excited to have with us Katie Couric, one of the most brilliant people ever in the news business. I've watched Katie for decades. I've always been blown away by her ability to translate complicated stuff to a general audience. And she's really the model for what I'm trying to do with this podcast courtside, take complicated Supreme Court stuff and explain why it matters to you. She also happens to be just about the nicest person in the world. So what you see with Katie is actually what you get. So Katie, thank you so much for being here. Well, that's one of the nicest introductions I've ever had, Neil. So I, I'll come on anytime. And thank you so much. And just for your listeners, we've had so much fun getting to know each other and hopping on Instagram lives and doing other interviews about big, important developments, particularly in the continuing saga of Donald Trump. And people respond so well to listening you talk, talk about these things because I think you do a good job of explaining in pretty understandable terms what all these things mean, because the law is complicated. Sometimes I wish I had gone to law school just to have the background of understanding the legal system, the criminal justice system, the various courts. I was married to a lawyer who was a criminal defense lawyer from Williamson Conley, which you know of in Washington, D.C., and I'd always ask him, would you explain this case? And when he went on and on, I'd be like, can you explain it shorter? And he'd say, I don't talk in sound bites. <laughs> exactly. Well, today we are going to have one of those complicated cases. It's a case called Association for Molecular Pathology versus Myriad Genetics. And just the name of it sounds technical, 
but it has a huge amount of personal relevance for both you and me and, and frankly, for many Americans. So indeed, if you were to ask me, Katie, what's the most important case I ever worked on in my legal career or what case I'm most proud of, it wouldn't be Guantanamo or the Obamacare, Affordable Care Act, or even saving the constitutionality of the Voting Rights Act. It'd actually be this case. So, you know, in order to explain why, I'll just walk us through the chain of events. So the case begins in the mid-1990s when a biotech company called Myriad Genetics isolated what are known as the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes. And these genes, when they're in your body, can lead to a severely increased risk of breast and ovarian cancer. And given the fact that the source of these genetic mutations had been previously unknown, it was a major groundbreaking discovery, and it opened the doors for all sorts of further research and made early testing possible for these cancers. So after discovering these genes, Myriad Genetics applied for patents. And a patent is basically just an exclusive right for an invention. So if I make some sort of invention device, I can apply for a patent, and that'll block anyone else from making or using or selling an alternate version of that invention. So that's what we call intellectual property. And over 20,000 such patents on human genes had been issued at the time of the Myriad Genetics case. It goes all the way back to the Reagan administration. It wasn't just for like breast cancer, but for genes for all sorts of other diseases, also for genes that code how you metabolize drugs like aspirin, which you know really do matter what your genes are. So this company, Myriad, isolates these BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes and they get patents on them. And what that meant is they had a monopoly on BRCA1 and 2 testing. So it would cost like $3,000 just to get a BRCA1 test. And my wife, Joanna, had to take the test at one point. She was fortunately okay. The blood test cost like 50 cents, but it was a $3,000 bill because of the licensing for the patent that Myriad had sought. So Myriad gets sued by other biotech companies that say, you can't patent this. And why, Neil? Because it's a natural occurring thing, right? Exactly. So there's something in the Patent Act called Section 101, which says whoever invents or discovers any new or useful composition of matter may obtain a patent. And the question in this case is, is this a new composition of matter or is this something that exists in nature, a law of nature, a product of nature? And so, Katie, um, I, I, you do want to tell us a little bit about what, what the court did there? Well, I think they divided the question into two sections. One was, was this naturally occurring or was it, as you mentioned, a new example of matter? And then they wanted to know if there was also something Myriad did, I understand, Neil, where they manipulated the gene or they did something to the gene that produce something called um, cDNA, right? Correct. I don't really know the procedure that they did and how they were able to go in and maybe manipulate the gene or fix the gene mutation, but clearly they weren't very successful because up to this day, if you're BRCA positive, BRCA1 or 2, BRCA1 or 2 positive, you still have to take pretty 
serious action in terms of getting a prophylactic mastectomy. Some women get prophylactic hysterectomies because your chances of getting breast cancer if you have BRCA1, I think, are 80% in your lifetime and 40% for ovarian cancer. With a BRCA2 mutation, you have a 60% lifetime risk of breast cancer and a 25% lifetime risk of ovarian cancer. So, Something tells me, even though they were given a patent for the second part, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I did my homework, or at least I tried to, um, it didn't do them much good because they haven't come up with any kind of therapy or gene manipulation that will help women who do test positive for these genetic mutations. So as usual, Katie, you're getting an A+. plus. So um, (laughs) there are two kinds of genes that are at issue in the case. One is just the literal sequence that exists in the human body of someone who has BRCA1 or BRCA2, those genes. It's just a string of nucleotides and a certain code. And those just exist in nature. And then there's a second thing, which is what you were calling cDNAs or complementary DNAs. And those are when a company or someone manipulates the DNA in one way or another. And uh, And maybe repairs it, right? I mean, ostensibly, that's what they would want to do. Sure. You can try and repair it or get a patent on a method to repair it or something like that. That is, you know, that that is a a form of treatment using the the cDNA. And uh, that's certainly something that we took the position in the government was patentable. Um, But you couldn't just patent something that just literally existed in nature. And the reason for, I think, the BRCA1 and 2 research wasn't as much, at least at that point, and I think even to this day, about trying to alter the human genome in some way to snip out the bad. It's much more of an early detection method. And so you're exactly right. If you test positive for BRCA1 or 2, you often have to take these very prophylactic steps in order to avoid uh, the aggressive breast cancer from forming. Did you follow Myriad's progress, Neil? Because, yes, you're right. For early detection, it's great. But I'm sure that the millions of women who do test positive for BRCA would love to be able to do something where instead of getting a mastectomy preventively or a hysterectomy, as I mentioned, where you could somehow fix the mutation or alter it so your risk might be the same as an average woman, which is significantly lower than these particular patients. That's exactly 100% right, Katie. So early detection and the kind of radical measures that are taken right now aren't, of course, ideal in any circumstance. And one of the things you want to do when you're thinking about intellectual property It's trying to balance incentives for research and development along with fairness to everyone. And, you know, that's what made this case so complicated. I mean, I I remember it vividly. I was Elena Kagan's principal deputy in the Solicitor General's office. And the day she was nominated to the Supreme Court, I took over her post. And within five hours of her nomination, I had calls from two different cabinet secretaries, as well as from Larry Summers, who was at the White House then asking me for my views on the Myriad case. And the nomination process with Justice Kagan was so fast, she hadn't even told me what the case was. So I didn't know what it was. I started reading. 
I learned that 24 different federal agencies had written to her asking her to take one position or the other. And the government was all over the place at loggerheads. And so I don't argument to what was the argument to give Myriad a patent for this technology? Because obviously it's life saving. But as you mentioned earlier, Neil, if they had a patent, they could continue charging $3,000 for the test where it really I, I guess it went down to about a hundred dollars after because all these other companies started, you know, developing these tests and they became much more available. Yeah. So what Myriad said was that we need to incentivize people to research and develop, research and develop and find these genes, isolate them like BRCA one and two. And then, as you were saying a moment ago, research the cures. And what I had to do was really figure out. In order to research the cures, do you need to have patents on what exists in nature, like BRCA1 or 2? Or is it enough to say, if you come up with any a way, as you were calling for a moment ago, Katie, a kind of solution, some way in which you could repair human genes or something like that, if you can patent that alone, isn't that enough of an incentive to do that kind of research? And after talking to everyone in the government for more than a year— and being tutored at an NIH on genetics every Monday night, that's basically what I said. I said, look, if it's something that exists in the body, then that's something that can't be patented. That's a product of nature. But if you're manipulating nature in some way, of course, that's human ingenuity, and that should be patented. And that was an enormously controversial decision. Many people in the biotech industry called for my head, said we'd lose. Oh, yeah. But we won it. 9-0 in the Supreme Court in this opinion by Justice Thomas that you were just telling us about. And um, I'm curious, Katie, did you like, as you read it, did you have views like on, is this the right thing to do? Is it the wrong thing to do? I thought it was the right thing to do. First of all, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I, I don't know about the science intimately, but it seems to me that if other competing companies were so quickly able to replicate this test and isolate and identify these particular gene mutations, that it didn't seem that difficult. Maybe, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I uh, So I, I also felt the same thing. I mean, listen, I didn't know about the Patent Act uh, <laughs> until today, <laughs> but it seems to me that if they are, are using some kind of interesting approach or targeting mechanism or whatever they're doing scientifically, you're right. That was the result of probably years of research on trying to figure out the mechanism under which these genes would mutate and how to either, as I said, reverse it or repair it. So I think uh, from everything I've read about the Patent Act, um, it sounds to me like it was the right decision, Neil. And I think that it doesn't necessarily discourage R&D because, as you said, coming up with a solution, you know, early early detection is great. And I'm a huge fan of early detection for all kinds of diseases when it can result the earlier, the better when it can be treated or even cured. That's not true of, of many diseases, by the way, but certainly cancer seems to have a better chance of being eradicated if it's detected early. Um, But so I I feel very strongly that 
these kinds of tests should be available to everyone. And the cost of $3,000 per test is so onerous that it would only be wealthy women who are able to get this kind of genetic testing. And I'm not sure if insurance or Medicaid would pay for it for women who couldn't afford it. And, you know, we already have a two-tiered system in this country with access and affordability of certain tests. And so I think that would have exacerbated that. And I think it would have set a very bad example for other biotech firms when there's a huge breakthrough that has the potential to save millions of lives. I think it doesn't seem, and and it it is something that, according to the Patent Act, is found in nature. It doesn't seem right to hoard that intellectual property and not use it for the greater good. I couldn't have put it better. And, you know, in many ways, Katie, the case is, sep- is kind of hard to separate from personal autonomy even if the Supreme Court isn't talking the language of personal autonomy and its ruling. But we talk about, for example, a woman's right to choose, and the government has no right to tell a woman what she can or can't do with her body. Um, shouldn't the same logic apply to our genes? Aren't they part of our bodies as well? I mean, if you think about kind of, forget about like the language of the Patent Act, but you know, should there be a limit on governmental and corporate interference with bodily autonomy? Well, I definitely think so, Neil. I mean, I feel very strongly about that, that a woman should have agency over her own body. I think it's complicated. And I think that doesn't mean totally without any restrictions whatsoever. But um, yes, I believe that that women should have the right to choose. And I'm horrified by what's going on in the country right now. And the fact that politicians are actually telling people in the medical community and patients themselves what is right for their health care. And of course, we've heard story after story of, of women in dire situations not able to access the medical care they need. And I think it's it's going to continue to be extremely dangerous. But then I think some states like Wisconsin are coming forward and saying, hey, this is not something that we want to do in the state of Wisconsin. I think it's interesting, though, that Clarence Thomas, who wrote this decision, could then be one of the people who wanted to overturn Roe v. Wade. Yeah, exactly. hundred percent. It's so interesting because it's the same person, in one hand, writes this remarkable decision, which changes, uh, you know, really healthcare for millions of Americans, not just with BRCA1 and 2, but there are now about 5,000 different diseases that you can have these genetic tests for and get early detection. And some of them, there's easier cures right. and prophylactic mechanisms, um, you know, far better than what we have for breast cancer. So it's a massive game change in the law that really launches the whole field of genomics, personalized genetic medicine, and the like. Um, I wanted to ask you, Katie, one of the things we do on courtside is kind of take some of our interviewees who are heroes and just talk a little bit about them personally and perhaps a little bit with the relation to the case they're discussing. And here, you know, obviously this case has so much resonance for you and it really underscores, I think, your resilience as a human being. I mean, your first husband, Jay, passed away due to colon cancer in 1998. And since then, you've been an extraordinary advocate for colon cancer awareness, getting on air 
colonoscopy. I remember that in 2000. Um, and then I know. Did you think I was crazy at the time? Because we didn't oh, know each I, other. No, I now think you're crazy because I do know you. But back then, I just thought you were brave. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, I just, you know, I remember that. And then learning that just three years later, your sister passed away from pancreatic cancer and your mother-in-law passed away from ovarian cancer. And none of it stops you. I mean, 2005, I think you're getting a mammogram during breast cancer awareness. Um, you, you know, co-founder of the organization Stand Up to Cancer. And then, of course, just about a year ago, you yourself was diagnosed with breast cancer. You were incredibly open about it. And I remember that you wrote these words after the diagnosis. You said, the heart-stopping, suspended animation feeling I remember all too well came flooding back. Jay's colon cancer diagnosis at 41 and the terrifying, gutting nine months that followed. And you talked a bit more about the family. So you faced this unbelievable adversity, and yet you exude joy, you exude hope, you never stop, as far as I can tell. How do you do that? Well, you know, I I think that I gave the commencement address at the university of Massachusetts Medical School last week. So this is all very fresh in my mind. And I remember asking, quoting Mary Oliver and asking the graduates, tell me what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? And I think that's the way I've always thought as well. We have one wild and precious life. We, I don't think Jay would ever want my life destroyed or the life of our daughters destroyed because he unfortunately, tragically got this despicable disease when he was just 41. I wouldn't want it to destroy his life or Ellie and Carrie's. So I think that I feel that we all are terminal and we all have a finite amount of time here. Who knows what comes afterwards? And we have to make the most of it every day. And I think because I had such a platform when Jay was sick to educate the public and to inform people about this life-saving procedure, or even later, Cologuard, which I helped support because compliance isn't as high as it should be among people 45 and older. And I think the best test is the one that gets done. And so um, I, I would feel really negligent to use the legal term to not inform the public about what I had learned and what they could do to prevent this from happening to them. And then, of course, I was motivated by Emily and Jay to join forces with eight women to start Stand Up to Cancer because we all saw that scientific research was being stymied by how siloed it was. And the fact that, you know, I mean, talk about intellectual property. People were being so proprietary and territorial, and you can understand on some level about their breakthroughs, but there was still so many people dying of cancer and still not many helpful therapeutics at the time we started Stand Up to Cancer, which was 2008, that we thought by 
collaborating instead of competing, we could move science forward faster. And so that's why we started Stand Up. That's why we support all these dream teams of scientists from all different places, from universities, from pharmaceutical companies, from biotech firms, uh, from big pharma, all working together and pooling their brain power and resources. Our research has contributed to the development of nine new FDA-approved drugs that are really having an impact on people with cancer. And then, of course, Neil, more recently, I mean, I just can't imagine keeping that a secret. I am a public figure for better or for worse. I mean, I have name recognition and I have a unique bully pulpit. And there are not that many people who do to share something that will really move public health and have an impact on public health. And to not do it, I think, would be so selfish. And so I was really anxious to share with women, A, get your mammogram, because a lot of you have put it off because of the pandemic, through no fault of your own. Maybe your t- your sense of time got got warped, but also a lot of facilities, as you know, and your wife's a doctor, they were closed. So there, you didn't have access to to getting some of these screening things done. And I also have used the opportunity to explain that if women have dense breasts, which is 45% of women 40 and over, that's a big chunk of the population, Neil, that that their clinicians or their radiologists may have difficulty determining if they have breast cancer because dense breast tissue and abnormalities look the same in a mammogram. They're all kind of this white mass. And my radiologist explained it, that it was like looking for a snowball against a field of snow. It's sometimes very difficult. So women like me who have dense breasts need to get additional testing like a breast ultrasound or an MRI. But A, many women don't even know that. And B, many women can't afford it. And so we've made some progress. The FDA has changed its policy. Starting next year, there will be a uniform notification system for all states, how they're going to tell women they have dense breasts, but more importantly, what they're going, to, what they can do about it or what they should do about it, all in the same language. So there's no, they can't be subject to interpretation and people will have it in front of them. And then I'm working with a couple of members of Congress, including Rosa DeLauro of Connecticut, to pass, introduce, well, she's introduced it. Now we need somebody in the Senate to co-sponsor it, uh, something called the Find It Early Act. And that will allow women who can't afford it or who have insurance that won't cover additional screening to, it will require insurance to cover it without a copay. So there won't be a caste system for women who can afford additional screening and live and women who can't. And, you know, black women have a 40% higher mortality rate from breast cancer than white women. You know, the same with prostate cancer and men, Neil, I think they have a two and a black men have a two and a half higher mortality rate than white men. A lot of this is the social determinants of health. A lot of it is actually access. So I, I think it's great that we're we're suddenly recognizing these health disparities that exist. And as Bono says, where you live shouldn't determine whether you live. And we really 
I think it's it's been very heartening for me, and then I'll shut up because I know I'm going on and on, to see the medical community and the scientific community saying, we have to bridge this gap. We have to do something about it. Well, it is incredibly heartening for me, Katie, to see your leadership in this area. And I'm so glad you mentioned this legislation because I can't think of something more important than eliminating these kinds of disparities in our healthcare system. Well, I couldn't be more grateful to you, Katie, not just for being on this, of course, podcast, but for really your life's work. I mean, it is so moving to watch what you've done in so many different spheres, but particularly right now in this healthcare sphere. Um, It's quite a legacy, um, and I can't thank you enough for spending a little time with us. I love being with you, Neil, but I just want to say one quick thing. I still believe most people are good. Most people want to do the right thing. Most people want to help others. And I just happen to be in a position where, for whatever crazy reason, I have a platform and I've developed a relationship with people enough to be able to to disseminate this kind of important information. So I appreciate it and I, I've chosen to use it, but I, I also really think most people would have done the same thing. Maybe, but you help us all unlock that better angel in ourselves, I think. And, you know, that's that's what your work is so. about. I hope so. <laughs> no, Not always, I think Neil. so. Not always. Ask, ask John. He's a very lucky man, John <laughs> Molnar. Very lucky man. That's all I can say. Um, so thank you again. Um, You're welcome. It was really fun and I learned a lot. So thank you for the lesson, Professor. Stop over at neilcatial.substack.com to support the show. And there you'll find all the episodes, written pieces, and bonus material and you can sign up so you don't miss anything. That's neilkatyal.substack.com. N-E-A-L-K-A-T-Y-A-L.substack.com. The music for the show was composed by the artists Dawson Hallow and Ronnie Bar-Hadas. Production services are provided by J.E. Peterson and Tyler Morissette at Voltage. Thank you for listening, and I'll have a new episode of Courtside for you next week. <laughs>